Let us try to fight our weariness. We're back to Joseph, right? And remember last week, Joseph was in prison being false, because he was falsely accused. And in prison, right, the chief cupbearer of the king and the chief baker of the king was under, Dave, under Joseph's charge, right? And these two men had a very strange dream, right? And Joseph was able to interpret these dreams for them. These two men were one of the more, more the, were the people in the inner circle of the king. They knew the king personally. They had the king's number on their speed dial, right? They can sometimes, you know, like I do this all the time. Sometimes, like I don't turn off my phone and I accidentally call my paralegals accidentally, right? Because I always call them and their numbers are always on my phone. So sometimes I just call them accidentally during the weekend and they freak out. I can do that because I'm very really close with them. And that's how close the cupbearer and the chief baker was with the king. And when Joseph was interpreting their dreams, especially the cupbearer's dream, he thought that that was his ticket out of jail. So he told the cup, chief, he told the cupbearer, remember me when you get out. You're going to get out of here, cupbearer, but remember me. Tell the king for me that I was, I'm an innocent man. Get me out of here. And the cupbearer says, oh, sure, no problem, man. I got you, homie. But when the chief bearer went out of jail, I'm not sorry, when the cupbearer went out of prison, it says at the end of the verse of chapter 40, he forgot about Jacob, Joseph. When you say, when Joseph was doing him a favor, the cupbearer says, no problem, I will remember you. I'm so thankful I will remember you. When they get out, when he got out, he forgets. This is a principle of the legal profession. The principle of the legal profession is this. Always get paid first. Because when they come to you with problems, they'll be willing to pay you anything. But if you try to collect after you solve their problems, they're not going to. Suddenly, they're, not screen, they're screening your calls. Like my girlfriends in high school. Never mind, I didn't have a girlfriend in high school. Right? So people change their minds all the time. And this cupbearer, this punk, forgot about Joseph. And because he forgot about Joseph, verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 41, two full years have passed. Because this cupbearer forgot about Joseph, Joseph was stuck in jail for two full years. Picture Joseph. Joseph knew God loved him. Joseph experienced the deliverance of God. I think Joseph also remembered the dream that he had when, at his father's house when his brothers and his father bowed down to him. So Joseph knew God in a very supernatural way, right? And then when the cupbearer came, I would imagine he thought, that's it. This is God's moving in, in his life to get him out of jail. Surely this is a sign from God. 
coming so that I can get out of jail. I think he was really convicted that he was going to get out of there to the cupbearer. But then he didn't. And he was stuck in jail for two years. Have you had that kind of experience? Have you had an experience where you thought, surely God is going to get you out of something? Or God is going to deliver you from something? And surely it's going to happen. Look, I can say it because we're not being recorded anymore. Look, I thought my job was a prison cell and I wanted to get out. I was tired of working until 2 a.m. at night. And I thought I was going to get out. And this company was looking for an in-house lawyer. (gasps) And I was looking at the job description. (gasps) It fit exactly my profile. I thought God was going to, I thought if I get this job, I have more time for my family and for y'all. It's perfect. I really thought that was God's will for me. Hot dog, I'm, being out of, I'm getting out of prison, I thought. But I didn't get it. I swore that I, I, swore that I thought that I did. But God said, nope. Was I disappointed? For a day I was. Has that happened to you? Has God let you down? Have you hoped in something? Have you thought something was really God's will for you? But it didn't turn out the way you thought it would go. Joseph was disappointed. He had hope, but God didn't make, God didn't, put what he hoped in into fruition. He hoped, but Joseph was sorely disappointed. That's life, isn't it? One of the things that makes life unbearable is that we hope in the things of life. But life kicks us, and life disappoints us. We swore things are going to go a certain way. But reality says, nope. The great tragedy in Texas, where 19 young children were killed. Mass shootings are horrible. But what makes this shooting so horrible and tragic is because it happened to these young children. Young children are not supposed to get gunned down at school. Young children are not supposed to be senselessly murdered. Our version, our view of reality is that those kids will grow up to be nice adults. I saw one interview with a parent. He said, I thought she was going to get married and I thought we would have more time. I thought I was going to see her graduate and get married. But that's all gone now. Life disappoints us. It will never go the way you thought it would go. God is not going to act in the manner and the time in which you think he should act. 
We're not a prosperity gospel church. And as a truthful pastor, I'll tell you, your version of reality, your expectation of reality, will never go the way you thought it it will. Like I gave an example a couple of weeks ago about this tragic figure, Fontaine, in Les Raw. She fell in love with a man, and she got pregnant by that man, and the man left her. And she's stuck in this brothel somewhere. And she sings, I thought my life would be so different from this reality that I'm living. Life is so different than what it seemed. Life has killed the dream I dreamed. So sad. Maybe you're not going to get the job that you thought you would. Maybe you're not going to get married. We don't know. Maybe you're going to get sick. And yet, the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. What? Paul says, I say rejoice. What? Be thankful in all circumstances. What? How are you supposed to do that? Is God delusional? Does he not know the hardship of life? How do you do that? How do you find joy and how do you be thankful in all circumstances, especially when life kicks you to the curb? How do you do that? Colton knows. Ask ask Coltrane over there. The secret to the Bible, the secret of joy in the midst of hopelessness is Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. Many are the plans in our hearts, but it's ultimately the Lord's purpose that will prevail. How do you find joy in the midst of crushing disappointment? Know that this world does not belong to you and it will never go the way that you expect it to go. In fact, your expectation really doesn't matter. What you need to know is that this is God's world and his purpose will always prevail and his purpose is ultimately always good. You can have joy in the midst of tragedies in this world. If you simply let go of the illusion that this is your world, it has to go the way you, ought to, you think it ought to go, and embrace the fact that this is God's world, and God's work is being done, and God's kingdom will be built, and one day you will be part of that kingdom. That understanding of God is the thing that will anchor your soul in life's disappointments. Key example is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, it says, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12, verses 1, it says, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. If you have faith in God, if you have living faith in God, it's because Jesus Christ has created your faith. Jesus Christ revealed, came to this world, revealed who God was. Jesus Christ taught who God was. Jesus Christ showed who God was. And Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you can be forgiven, so that you can become God's. If you have faith in the living God, it is because Jesus Christ had made it possible. Jesus Christ is the author, author of your faith. He's the creator of your faith. Jesus Christ is also the perfecter of your faith. He will work in you during the course of your life to, to perfect the faith in you. You are Jesus' house, and he's building his house in you. Jesus Christ is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. If he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, then we are called to live like him. How did Jesus live in according, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? He says, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, went to the cross. Cross is an, ex- is an instrument of death, right? On the cross, he bore the wrath of God was pouring down upon him. The humiliation of men was, was, was deriding him. God was pouring his wrath again towards Christ because of our sins. Men were ridiculing him. From heaven, wrath, from earth, ridicule and shame. Befall upon the perfect son of God. That's what he did for us. Enduring the wrath of God, enduring our ridicule. He was crushed, the Bible says. He was crushed. How was, he, how was he able to endure the crushing nature of the cross? He said he put his mind on the joy set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? What was the joy that he had in his mind when he was being crushed? He saw the perfect day of God. When Christ was being crushed, he saw the end. He saw the perfect world. He saw you and I being saved. You and I being restored to sanity and righteousness. You and I praising the name of God. He saw our dead bodies resurrecting and giving glorious bodies. He saw the truth of God being fully revealed. He saw the justice of God fully realized. 
Oh, and he saw the love of God emanating from all corners of the world. He saw, you know? He saw. He saw the end, and because he saw the end, he could endure the crushing pressure of the cross. And if you are a Christian, if you're a gospel-shaped Christian, that's exactly how he wants us to live. Beyond the pressures of this world, he's calling us to fixate our eyes on that perfect day. When the love of God and the justice of God and the truth of God and the nature of God is fully revealed. And it'll be beautiful. It'll be beautiful. When you fixate your eyes on that day, you'll be able to endure it. Endure this life. Look, sometimes when I pray, right? And it happened to me last week. I get visions sometimes. Right? And, and vision, I mean, I get images in my head. So I was praying for y'all a couple of days ago. Right? I forgot who else I was praying about. I was praying about someone, and God just hit me with a vision. Right? And the vision I had when I was praying was this. The Bible says we are in darkness. And I envisioned that all of us are in a cave, a really dark cave somewhere. And in that dark like cave, there are two sources of light. The forcer source of light came from the outside world. It's gloriously bright like it's outside. We're stuck in a cave, but there's a crack in the cave where the brilliant light of the sun of the real world shines, penetrates, and it illuminates a little bit into the cave. You get, you get the illustration? There's a real world out there, and from the real world, light comes, shines into the cave that we're in. There's another light that comes from a flashlight that someone dropped. Okay? Being a Christian is this. Being a Christian is someone who sees a true light and walk towards that light. And the closer you walk towards that light, the closer you are going to the real world full of beauty and light and life, yeah? You walk toward that direction because you start seeing the light more clearly till one day you'll get out of that cave and you'll go into this glorious, sunshiny world. Are you with me in my illustration? That's what a Christian is. God's telling you, this world, you're in a cave. This world that you're in is not the real world. The real world is in the outside, and the real world is coming. And so the duration of your life here, each day you walk closely towards that true world, true light. An unbeliever is someone who doesn't walk towards the light. An unbeliever is someone who walked towards the flashlight. The flashlight seems like light. But when you go towards the flashlight, you'll discover it's just a flashlight. And one day the flashlight will go away and that light will disappear and you'll still be in darkness. People who follow the flashlight are people who follow after false lights of the world. 
light of materialism, light of man-made philosophy, whatever false light is, many people walk towards that light. In the end, that light will not save you. Christians walk towards the radiance of God's light to, a po- to the point where eventually you'll be in a glorious world. That's the vision I got. Crazy dream, huh? What I'm telling you is this. If you're a Christian, even if you're not, it is inevitable that the real world is coming. It is inevitable that the glorious, radiant world will come. It's inevitable. God is shepherding the world so that his glorious, radiant world will be realized in this life. The Christian hopes in that world and walks towards that world. Whereas the unbeliever continually dwells in darkness. You can have hope in this dying world when you know the real life is coming. And when you realize God will do, God is working all the pieces of his life to realize, so that that world will be realized in this world. What are you following after, dear friend? What do you value, dear friends? Is it the true light of the world? Or are you following after a flashlight? Look, each day that we live is a we're journey each is a step towards certain toward a destiny, right? A destination. Each day, the each day that you live, you either walk closely, closer to the true life or you walk towards the flashlight. Each day is your step going somewhere. Where is the step of your life? Where, where are you journeying to? Closer to the real life or closer to the flashlight? Christians know God will do, God will establish the true world here. God, will, God is shepherding everything so that the true world will be realized here. And nothing can stop him. No man can stop him. Nothing, Satan can stop him. His world will be fully realized. Joseph, I would imagine was disappointed when he had to wait in jail for two years. But Joseph had no idea that Pharaoh was going to dream the dream two years later. And through that dream, Pharaoh was going to get Joseph out of prison. Even though Joseph was disappointed, you could see God still at work to establish his purposes in Joseph and to establish his purpose in Israel. God is at work. Just because you can't see it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. So Pharaoh dreamed. Pharaoh had a dream. In order to establish God's purposes, God allowed Pharaoh to have a dream. What is, first of all, who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And Egypt I didn't know this until I Googled it. 
God loved Google. Egypt was the most prominent kingdom in the world for 30 centuries. Right, Asian people, math. If you're the prominent kingdom for 30 centuries, how many years is that? Anyone? That's right, accountant. 3,000. I want to give my money to Sean. He's good with numbers. For 3,000 years, Egypt was the most civilized kingdom, the most powerful kingdom, the most influential kingdom in the history of the world. And Pharaoh was the top potato, was the king of that kingdom. Pharaohs didn't see themselves as mere man. Like Tom Cruise doesn't see himself as mere man. He didn't see himself as mere man. He saw himself as a god. Right? So this god-man had a dream. And it was a really strange dream. Very weird, violent dream. He dreamt the seven cows, seven fat, plump cows came out of the Nile. And then seven like sickly-looking cows came out of the Nile right after them. And he dreamt the sickly cows ate the fat cows. Whoa, what a crazy dream is this? He got a nightmare. Oh, what is this? So he fell back to sleep. He dreamt the second dream where a great, like, what was what, what, the second dream? It's like, it's like there's this, like, grain, seven grains that popped up, seven healthy grains that popped up. And after the seven healthy grains popping up, seven sickly grains popped up. And the seven sickly grains ate the seven healthy grains. Pharaoh got up again and go, what's going on here? What is this dream that I have? I can't figure it out. The man with most influence, the man with most power, the man with most, the vastest army, the man, the most influential man in the world had a dream and he couldn't figure it out. What good is his power? What good is his army? What good is his influence? He can't figure out his own dream. For us, we go, wow, he's rich. He's powerful. He got it all, son. But the man cannot interpret his own dreams. The Egyptians thought dreams were communication from the other world. And dreams oftentimes tell us what will happen in the future. By the way, Koreans believe in this too. right? Dreams happening, warnings about the future. Like, whenever my mom has a bad dream, she calls me. And she said, I had a bad dream about you. Be careful. Watch out. I go, what? Emily knows what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, dreams. Like, when, when my wife was pregnant with Caleb, my mother-in-law dreamt that a huge dragon was going into my wife's womb. And therefore, we knew we were going to have a son. What? It's true. He's sitting right there. They thought dreams meant something. Dreams communicate the mysteries of life. But this king, with the vastest of armies and the most, most power, couldn't figure out 
the mysteries of life. Man is so limited what he can do, do, sorry, do. What does it matter what we have? We cannot figure out what life is about. We cannot figure out the mysteries of life, no matter how much money or power that we have. Man is limited. What the dream, spoiler alert, what, what the dream was about was the seven cows and the seven grains, seven healthy cows and seven healthy grains symbolized seven years of prosperity, of, of f- fertility in the land of Egypt that will, that will, that will come. For seven years, Egypt was going to get fat, right? For seven years. Like record number of grains, record number of fruits, record number of cows being born. It's just plenty. Like the dot-com era of the 19, late 1990s. Remember the dot-com era of the 1990s? It was, everyone was just money crazy. Fatness is coming. Whereas Joe Austin would say, the favor of the Lord is coming to you. But after the seven years, the seven sick cows and the seven sick grains symbolize the seven years of famine. He's going to come on the land. That's what his dream was about. Pharaoh not only couldn't understand the dream, Pharaoh had no power to stop the famine. You understand? Even though Pharaoh thought himself as a god, He didn't have the power to stop the drought from coming. Pharaoh didn't understand. Pharaoh cannot control the drought. Pharaoh cannot control control tomorrow. His dream symbolizes, is indicative of the fact that the limitations of man The most powerful man in the world cannot understand the mysteries of life. The most powerful man in the world cannot stop natural disasters. The most powerful man in the world cannot stop tomorrow coming. Man is limited. Therefore, in in Psalm 37, when man thinks that that, that, that they're winning, God laughs at them. God laughs at our plans. Because it's it's as if this little baby is bragging that he could control everything in life. It's just not true. Pharaoh got so troubled by the dream he couldn't understand that he called his wisest men, his sorcerers and wise men. Sorcerers were magicians like Dr. Strange. You know what I mean? Have you seen Doctor Strange? No? Okay, I'm the only Marvel geek. He says, sorcerers know, can interpret what is going on in the spiritual dimension. Right? Sorcerers, can, like, they have the connection to the, to the other world. He brought his best sorcerers. He brought his, the wise men of his, men of his you know, inner circle. And he gave them the dream. He says, sorcerers and wise men, what is this dream about? And they go, I don't know. The wise, the best and the brightest of them couldn't understand the dream, couldn't understand the mysteries of life. 
These were the best men that they ever had, that Pharaoh ever had. And these men could not help Pharaoh out. What do the wise men and the most powerful men know about life? What do they know about the mysteries of life? Can the wisest and the smartest of men control tomorrow? Can they stop natural disasters? Can they stop violence? Can they stop gun violence? What can these best and the brightest do? Nothing. We need to have a somber opinion, view of ourselves and as a human being. What can you possibly do? What do you really know? What can you possibly control? Look, right now, last week, there was a World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where the most brilliant minds meet with the most wealthiest people. And they have a conference every year. And this, in the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, these rich men come over, these smart men, and the rich men and the smart men come together, and they devise a plan of the world, right? They're the best of the best, the richest of the rich. They come, and they organize, and they strategize of how the world will be run. God looks at them, and he laughs at them. Can they possibly change the world? Can they possibly change the destiny of humanity? Can they? Can they stop stop natural disasters? What power do these most influential men have? Nothing. They understand nothing. They know nothing. Ultimately, they can't do anything worth significance. Do you understand? Look, right now, the Western world is primarily dominated by the thoughts of maybe five or six guys. Right now, what you're thinking is pretty much influenced by five or six dead white guys. Freud, Derrida, Marx, Darwin, Foucault, and Rousseau. These are the six men of the apocalypse. These six dead white guys, Foucault, Derrida, Marx, Freud, Darwin, and what's the other guy? Rousseau. These six guys are influencing the way you think. It doesn't matter whether you know their philosophy or not. You know who knows their philosophy? The people who design your entertainment do. They know the, the, the thoughts of these men. And they make the entertainment based upon these philosophies. And the stories that are being told through, based on the philosophy of these men are influencing you. The whole transgender thing is influenced by Freud and Foucault. It is. That's why when I, never mind, I don't get my soapbox. But the modern thought, billions of people are influenced by the, hand, by the ideas of a handful of dead white guys. Is the world better because of their philosophy? No. 
The world's being shepherded by their ideas. And the world is no better for it. Men do not know. Bill Gates do not, does not know. Who's the other guy? Bezos with his 100 million yacht. He doesn't know. Who knows? The professor at Harvard? All fools compared to, the, compared to, compared to God. So Pharaoh couldn't understand. His men couldn't understand. No one could understand the dream. Then the cupbearer raised his hands. He says, excuse me. I remember, remember two years ago when you sent me to prison? When I was in jail, I had a dream. I had a dream, right? I had a dream two years ago, and I couldn't understand it. But this Hebrew guy came. He interpreted my dreams. And it happened exactly the way he dreamt it. He, he interpreted it, he says. The cupbearer told Pharaoh about Joseph. God made it so that the only person who could interpret Pharaoh's dream in the world at that particular moment in time was Joseph. No one could interpret those dreams besides Joseph. God made it so. God's will to Pharaoh was revealed through Joseph. Men and their wisdom couldn't figure it out. Pharaoh and his power couldn't figure it out. The dream could only be figured out when God revealed his will through Joseph. Do you understand? That is the Christian message. We are fools. We cannot, we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know a lot of things. Everything's a mystery to us. We think we know, just like the pharaoh and the sorcerers and the magicians thought they knew. But in the end, ultimately, things of life is a mystery to us. We don't really know. Do you understand? We don't know who we are. We really don't. We really don't know what is best for us. We really don't. We really don't know what the, who the other people are. We really don't. We think we do. We really don't know other people. We don't know what's best for us. We don't, need, we don't know what we really need. We don't know these things. We think we do. We think we do. But we have no idea. The only way that we will know these things is if God reveals them to us. We don't know who we are. Look, um, who's that guy? Alistair Begg, my favorite pastor. He says, men and women do not know who they are because they don't know where they're from. They don't know why they were created. And they don't know where they're going. 
How do you know who you are if you do not know where you're from? If you do not know why you were created? And if you don't know ultimately where you're going after death? How do you know who you are if you don't know that, if you don't have this information? The pop artist JYP says he became a Christian because he realized his life right now in this world is the middle act of his existence. He says, when I, from birth to death, that's the middle life, the midsection of my life. I'm in the middle. The beginning of my life was before I was born, and the end of my life is after I die. I'm in the middle, he says. And if people do not know the beginning of their lives and at the end of their lives, how would they know what their life is about here? That's what he's saying. People are confused because they don't know where they're from and they don't know where they're going. People don't know who they are. You don't know who you are. You really don't. Look, because we don't know who we are, we get tangled up. We have this unhealthy understanding of who we are. Abigail Shire is a Wall Street Journal journalist. She wrote a book about the rising, crazy rise of transgenderism among, among teenage girls. And her theory is there's a huge, like, dramatic rise of transgenderism among teenage girls. And it's not because it's biology, she says. It's because these teenage girls, when they're going through puberty, they don't really know who they are. They're feeling these strange things, and they don't know who they are. And because they don't know who they are, they look to the world, and the world tells them, maybe you're transgender. And they go, maybe I'm transgender. So they embrace the narrative of the world without really thinking about it because they just don't know who they are. No? Because people don't know who they are, they try to buy themselves a self-identity. They try to work themselves a self-identity. They do these things to, because they don't know who they are. Look, yesterday, wife, wife's birthday, went to Tyson's 2, you know, the fancy mall, the fancier side of Tyson's, one without Uniqlo, you know what I mean? I love Uniqlo, but the one without Uniqlo, right? I went because of my wife's birthday. I'm such a good husband. And so there was an Omega store at Tyson's 2. Right? And I really wanted this watch called the Omega Speedmaster. I go, huh, let me go and see how much the Speedmaster costs. So I went to the Omega store, right? It was fancy. And I said, can I see the Speedmaster? So the clerk put on gloves. Whoa. And she carefully took the watch out. And I said, can I try it on? She said, yeah. I go, wow. And I tried it on, and man, it was bling-blingy. And I said, how much? She said, $7,000. And I go, okay, so I gave her my credit card. Of course I didn't. Are you crazy? <laughs> right? Imagine me with a $7,000 watch here. You know what I mean? When I was looking at that watch, I got it. I got why people would spend that kind of money for this kind of watch. Because wearing it, it makes them feel special. It makes them feel that they stand out. They don't know who they are. And because we don't know who we are, we try to buy our identity. Look, 
This past week, I made one paralegal and one lawyer cry. Two female staff. Didn't mean to. I'm a nice guy, but I made them cry. Why did I make them cry? I simply pointed out, corrected their mistakes in a very smiling kind of way. I was a very pastor day to them. You go, hey, you made the mistake. Let's try to fix it, shall we? And they cried on me, yo. Why? Because their worth as a human being was tied to the quality of their was tied to the quality of their work. It was tied to my approval of their work. It's crazy. Why would you, why would your self-worth be tied to how I feel about your work? Because they don't know who they are. Do you know who you are? Really? Do you know what is best for you? You may think you do, but do you really know what's best for you? We think what is best for us is giving whatever we want, God giving us whatever we want. Right? But the Bible says what's best for you is discipline. God's saying no. That's what you need. Another realization I had this week. I was thinking about all those people who tells me they feel disconnected to the church. They want someone to reach out to them. And I go, oh, I feel bad. But I realize in a biblical way, the way you feel connected to the church is not when someone reaches out to you. But you feel connected to the church when you start serving the church. Do you understand? We think what we need is people reaching out to us and Pastor Jay buying lunch for you. That's what we think we need. But in order for you to feel connected to the church, what you really need is to serve the church. We think we need one thing, but in reality, we need the other. We think we need people, people's love. Bible says, no, more than you maybe allowing people to love you, you need to love people. When you love people, then you feel connected. Do you know what you really need? Do you know what's best for you? Do you know what job is the best for you? Look, for the longest time, for the last four years, I thought my job was a prison sentence. A prison that pays a lot, pays you, pays me pretty good living, but a prison sentence still. But it was now recently I knew that's where God wanted me to be. When I realized that, I have more fulfillment in my work. For four years, I didn't think that that was the job for me. But now I realize that's exactly the job for me. It took me four years to realize this. What do you really know about yourself? What do you really know what is best for you? What do you really know? The great scientist and philosopher Pascal says, Lord, I don't know whether success is good for me or failure is good for me. I have no idea. Whatever is best for me, just give it to me. The great medical missionary, Jonathan Livingston, this was his prayer. He says, Lord, take me anywhere, but just go with me. 
give me any burdens. Just sustain me and cut and sever any ties that I may have, but for the ties that bind my heart to yours. He's saying, God, take everything away. God, take me anywhere. It doesn't matter. I just need to be yours. Look, these two men, they know, they have no idea what's best for them. They have no idea where to go. They have no idea what they know is if God takes them, that's the best place they could be. Guys, you don't know who you are. You don't know what's best for you. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You don't know anything. Let's be honest. But understanding comes when God reveals himself to you. When God reveals who he is, who you are, what the gospel is to you, you will have a solid understanding of your worth as a human being. God has to reveal that to you. You will understand what you really need as you walk with God. You will realize what is best for you as God reveals what is best for you to you. God is in this constant business of revealing things to you. And when you drink in his revelation, you will see things more clearly, more truthfully. God's greatest gift in your life is not to give you the dream job. God's greatest gift to your life is revelation. Revelation of who he is, revelation of who you are, revelation of what you were created for, revelation of where you're going, revelation of the fact that you're loved, revelation of what is best for you in this life, revelation, revelation, revelation that he will give to you. That's the greatest gift. Like God gave revelation to Pharaoh through Joseph, God gives revelation to us through Jesus Christ, through his word, through the church. Let's stop pretending to know what we're really about. Let's ask God what we're about. And he will give it to you. So let us stop walking in darkness. Let us stop walking in darkness. Let us stop walking in ignorance. Let us walk in the revelation of God's light. And I promise you, he'll give it to you. He will. Humble yourself and ask him. Let's pray.